morning, travellers. It's If. For today's story, we're journeying a little further afield. Follow the River Scar inland, and you arrive at some of the South Coast's most precious wetlands. A would-be chronicler of, let's say, alternative experiences, wrote in to tell us of an evening they spent there. Underneath his yellow scruff of beard and mop of hair, even in the chiaroscuro of the moonlight that has flattened his features, there's something familiar about Tom. Maybe it's not his face. It could be the jumper he's wearing. Did I bundle it into a black bag full of bric-a-brac years before in an act of lazy altruism, nestling it amongst the tat to be hawked at the Cancer Research UK shop down in the village? I can't be certain. But if what I've heard from our mutual friend is true, I'll have plenty of time to rifle through my tattered memories as we wait in silence. Tom is a man of few words, and even less deodorant. Psychedelics are having a moment. Thousands of miles away in California, the school friend who introduced us has told me, millions are being thrown at ways to legally harness the power of peyote and shrooms, and many more of nature's brain scramblers besides. And of course, back amidst the green and pleasant, the British have been having their own moment too. For the last 30 years, actually, in clubs and raves all along and abreast of the aisle. What I've come to consume tonight, though, is perfectly natural and untouched. It is no inorganic white powder, no lurid coloured pellet, certain to induce diarrhoea and a sore jaw. Or it might. The night is yet young. We're waiting for two things. We're waiting for the sun to disappear, and we're waiting for the others, two of Tom's vetted acquaintances who, like me, are seeking their first taste of something new. I'm early, having driven at breakneck speed after being summoned by Tom with just an hour to arrive before the sunset. At the pontoon, Tom and I have exchanged gruff pleasantries but little else. My attempts to make conversation mostly about our one friend held in common, are left to hang in the air like the clouds of midges that have begun to gather. Now we sit alongside each other. He hunches, squinting at a map annotated liberally with red biro, and I lean back on my elbows, watching the waterfowl skim the surface of the river while two crabbers gather their strings and buckets and bait and retire for the evening. They chirrup happily about their catch, jigging them about in buckets. Once they're out of sight, I reach for my pocket notebook, then decide against it. I'm really glad I saw your text, I say. Tom doesn't look at me. Why tonight, anyway? There's a pause so long it makes me wonder if he's even heard me. Perfect temperature, he mutters, for the algae. I nod, ignorantly. He's not looking. Once it drops below three degrees, he explains, you can forget about it. I say we give him another five minutes. Any longer and the trout will disappear. He folds his map and stuffs it into the pocket of his parka. As we make to turn back toward the road, two young men in almost identical high street attire jog up the pontoon to meet us. I decide immediately that I do not like them. You're late, Tom says. Sorry, mate. Traffic and that. 
Tom awaits more groveling. For a second, I even see a crack in his carefully manufactured serenity when he realises he isn't going to get any. He brushes past us, and, without looking back, motions us to follow him with a pale hand. We trot after him obediently. What's it like? I ask. The lads alongside me titter, and I'm surprised by how self-conscious I feel. Not good. I hope this doesn't get in the way of my first trout trip. Tom picks his way gracefully over the mounds that lead to his special spot, and he seems to swing between irritation at everyone around him, some kind of regret, and a sincere desire to educate. I take care to place my feet in the vague prints left behind his own. Depends, he says, with a shrug of his bony shoulders. The others overtake me. Pebble and sand have turned to mushy bog. In the darkness I misjudge my step, and the pressure nearly sucks off my welly. I hook it out and stagger on. For some it's visual. For others it's more like a body high. Have you ever done acid? Before I can think, I'm nodding yes. It's like that, but softer. How long does it last? I ask. It's fortunate indeed that I have an innate lack of awkwardness around asking pointed questions. Depends on the individual. The trout or the human? We're turning now towards a bank. The other two seem happy to let me have Tom's ear. Both, he says. Tom lifts his hand again, the palm flat. All three of us slow down, shut up and creep, to the extent that one can creep over reeds and bog and moss. He pulls something out of his pocket and throws it into the water. Finally convinced that silence might be most revealing of all, I don't ask him what he's thrown. Harmless bait? Or something stronger? Perhaps it doesn't matter. There they are, as if they've materialised at the point of Tom's wand-like finger with its grubby brown nail, mere inches from the surface of the water, their rainbow scales shimmering palely in the moonlight. We have found the trout. Flaky pink flesh that melts like butter on the tongue, though, or delicate crusts of almonds or trickles of white wine sauce, are not what we're here for. Some say it's all about global warming. Others say it's something in the runoff from the oil refinery. Tom tells me, though, that there are accounts in the Scarswell area going back hundreds of years, accounts written by monks and various ascetics, of a magical fish that could impart its powers unto those who are willing. And as long as I've lived here, in fact, there have been rumours of trout with psychedelic properties, which conveniently inhabit various inlets around the rivers Trist and Scar. Until my friend in California had put me right, though, and until I met Tom, I suppose, a sort of charmless shaman and independent scientist, I considered this to be nothing more than an urban myth, and a rather underwhelming urban myth at that. Before I could think of any reason not to, I'd sent a tentative text message to the number the friend had provided me. And now here I am, hoping that later I'll remember enough that I can write it down, and that it might be something worth spending this night in the marsh with three men I don't know. The trick, Tom murmurs, having somehow arrived so close to my ear that his voice tickles the little hairs inside, is to reach where you think they're going, and don't grasp them too tight. Just sort of 
cup them. My breathing slows. I crouch with my hands apart, poised for the right time. Just like a lover's neck. I lunge forward with startled relish, plunging my hand through the cold water, grasping desperately. For a second I think I've missed it by overreaching, until it thrashes against my hand. The boys clutch each other excitedly. I start to panic. Now lift, Tom says, motioning with a strange thespian tenderness, and lick. With childlike deference, I rip the trout from the river and follow the rainbow, run my tongue along the belly, its terrified eye a mere inch from my own. A mucilaginous substance collects at the tip of my tongue. It tastes of river, and it takes everything in me not to spit it straight out. Instead, my tongue still lolling, I offer my catch to Tom, who shakes his head with undisguised disgust. Never share your trout, he says. Then, more gently, I'll get the next one. I swallow my scum, and I wait with trepidation and with emotions less easily defined for it to transcend my various mucous membranes, wiping my hands on the backs of my jeans and fighting the urge to smell them. After a few attempts, Kieran and Michael catch fish of their own, and they relieve the poor blighters of their slime far less demurely, like children trying to save a fruit ice lolly from melting in the sun, or being carried off by a swarm of wasps. Tom watches us carefully all the while. Only when we're done does he fish out his own, plucking it from the surface of the water as casually as one might take a plastic package from a supermarket shelf. They seem to swim more languidly than the sort I used to catch so many years ago with my father. I remark about this. Tom informs me it's something to do with the moon. He cups his hands and, like a lover, works his curiously long tongue from the head of the fish to the tail, presumably to avoid the unpleasant mouthfeel of the lifting scales. Stanley, Tom says imploringly. Kieran tries and fails to stifle a laugh at my name. Let it take you. He turns around and presses his fingers into my shoulders. There's something so familiar about him, and not in any comforting way. He makes me feel like I'm revisiting the teenage bedroom of a long-lost friend. It's Kieran, apparently, who feels it first. The laughter falls at once from his face, and he starts to cry instead. Great choking sobs, and helpless words about his stepfather squeezed into the spaces meant for breathing. Tom, who up until now possessed a complete aloofness, the kind emblematic of a man who knows more about algae than almost anyone for twenty miles in every direction, and knows it too, has flung his arms outward and is gasping at the sky. A little spittle flies out, settling haphazardly on his beard. Michael tears off his shirt and strides with purpose down the bank and into the river. It occurs to me that I might need to call someone. I curse myself for not researching the legality of trouting. I see the endless, fish-themed punning headlines splashed across the front pages of the papers, my reputation in fillets. I've got to get out of here. I turn my back on the others, finger the outline of my notebook in my back pocket, and stumble vaguely in the direction of where we came from. Whenever whatever is going to happen happens, I want very much to be alone, 
I'm out of the bog when it hits me. I'm somewhere else. It's years ago. I'm in the excited crush of an impromptu house party in deepest Scarswell Rise, and the smell and the noise have become overwhelming, even for the likes of me. In the haze of one too many Bacardi breezes, which is to say any at all, found discarded in a rhododendron bush and belonging to no one in particular, I search desperately for ballast. And there he is, a young man with the aura of a lost little boy, seemingly invisible to everyone but me, sipping chamomile tea and avoiding conversation in a familiar jumper. It's Tom, and his thick beard is now a mere peppering of fuzz, and his hair is much shorter, combed smartly to one side. We retreat into the kitchen where he brews me a cup of my own, and during the infusion I learn, despite all appearances to the contrary, that it is he who actually owns the house. Then I laugh and laugh and laugh until I'm sick, all over the Victorian tiles he inherited from his grandfather, and all over his shoes, which might also have been inherited from his grandfather. I hate myself for it, but I'm laughing again now, laughing so hard that the edges of my throat hurt, so hard I fear my lungs might be flung outside my mouth like a pair of old and tattered socks. But I can't stop. I walk and walk until I can't feel the ground underneath my feet, I slip on something pink and slimy, a bit of my own brain, or a piece of errant bacon bait from a long-gone crabber. I need to lie down. I want to stretch out my arms, to flail and make a muck angel. I should try to get to the path, but I can't. I can't even turn my head anymore, so I look up. Thursday today, so there's less light pollution. The stars rearrange themselves to form a face. The face resembles the face of my departed father, who bestows a glittering wink. I wink back. The hacking laugh has given way to tears. They pool around my eyes, and then they slip silently over my temples and into the riverbed. There are so many I can feel them flow across the undersides of my arms and around my fingertips. Soon the back of my jacket is sodden and heavy. The heels of my shoes sink into the mud and I'm aware of a trickling noise somewhere far away. It could be my tears, or it could be the tide returning like a sheet to tuck the land back in for the night. I try to close my eyes, and I realise they already are. I do my best to think of home, to think of crisp and freshly laundered sheets, cups of chamomile tea, the lights of Scarswell Harbour beyond my bedroom window. My serene fatalism is pricked by the far-off realisation that my notebook scribblings might be blurred and ruined. Washed away by all this water that has risen to trickle down my jean legs, if indeed it's even real, but I give myself to the river all the same. Biro is waterproof anyway, isn't it? Still, I start to suspect that the trout's wicked effects are waning. My heavenly father has left me, but my arms and legs remain leaden and useless. I open my mouth to call out, but instead, in a sudden plume, I lose the ribena I gulped down on the way over in a grateful arc that isn't as red as I feared it might be. It shimmers in the muted rainbow spectrum of trout scales. Morning comes to the estuary, as muddy and dull as carp, I wake slowly and unwillingly, 
pulling my muddy jacket around me with a no mum, I'm not going to school today grumble. All the same, the seconds before I realise the true soddenness of my plight are blissful. Coming to full consciousness, I smell mud and riverbank and worse. I writhe bone-deep in soggy clothes that, I can tell, will be bundled into a carrier bag and disposed of before the morning is out. Somewhere nearer than it ought to be, the river laps sarcastically at the bank. Standing up, eventually, I have a good look around. The place shows no sign of the odyssey that took place here just hours before. The water is a calm and translucent brown. The bank bears few footprints. The grasses wave, and the wind rustles in the trees. I would commit shocking, immoral acts for a good, strong cup of tea. There's a noise nearby, and a misplaced fear shoots through me like a digestive illness. Turning on the spot, my eyes settle eventually on a shape, moving amidst the grasses and reeds and mud, congealing eventually into something rather like a tattered, overly moist human being. I can't remember his name for the life of me. Martin, or Mike, or Mikey, or something. Kieran. I think it's Kieran. Morning, I say, adopting an absurd casual tone, like I've just opened the door in the milkman's face. Kieran palms his own face with considerable aggression. It looks like he's trying to peel away and discard his entire outer layer. All right, he says after a while. It's not a question. It's more like a mantra. Have you seen Tom? I say. I'm not sure why it matters. I just feel like, right now, Tom might be able to dispense the kind of advice I need. The kind of advice I haven't even realised I need yet. Tom, with his even tone of voice, his stringy limbs, his deep-set eyes. Kieran peers at me oddly. Goodness knows what bizarre environs he's visited on his recent voyage. Who the hell is Tom? He says. Here at the Scarswell Tourists Information Office, we rely on our listeners. If you enjoy our stories, please consider supporting us on Patreon and find our newsletter, merch and more at scarswellonsea.com. We'll see you in two weeks. We're so very sorry.